Blog Talk Radio. dedicated to bringing you the absolute best information possible on rifle marksmanship, American history and heritage, and the things that we as American citizens need to do in order to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords us. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening tonight. And uh, in just a little bit, we're going to have... uh, Tom Stalkup, who is the producer for TWA Flight 800. That's the documentary that, uh, that covers the, the 1996 aircraft crash uh, off the coast of Long Island of TWA Flight 800. And, of course, it had the deaths of 230 passengers and crew aboard. Uh, it was it was sold to everyone as a, a simple uh, malfunction, uh, or rather a mysterious malfunction, of the center fuel tank explosion. But uh, but it was a lot more than that, and uh, we're going to get into that in just a minute. I'd like to make sure that everybody knows uh, we're going to have the the run-and-gun 
at Battle Road uh, USA here in Central Texas this Saturday. 4.5 mile looping trail and uh, okay, that's me trying to, to type and uh, and talk at the same time. <coughs> 4.5 mile looping trail with eight stations for rifle and pistol and uh, obstacles in between each station. And uh, we still got some spots left. If you guys would like, uh, if anybody would like to show up Saturday, you're welcome to show up. We'll be uh, working with uh, Melanie Davis. She was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, from LoveYourVeterans.org, and it's a uh, uh, an organization dedicated to helping out veterans, especially those veterans that are transitioning from civilian, I mean, from military to civilian life. And especially those veterans that are transitioning from military to civilian life with some type of uh, uh, of injuries, physical or maybe uh, PTSD, stuff like that. Because whenever you go from uh, military to civilian life, especially if you've been in for a while, uh, it is a big change. And... Uh, and it can leave a lot of folks, a lot of folks, stressed out. And that's without the fact that uh, you may have uh, uh, a soldier who has lost an arm or leg, or uh, or that has uh, the post-traumatic stress disorder, or or any one of a thousand things that can happen. You know, we have almost, uh, I believe, almost 400,000 uh, in the last, uh, well, I guess it's been the last uh, 20 years of fighting there in the Middle East. That's, uh, that's a lot of guys messed up. And I'm not going to dog the military. There's something that needs dogging. Uh, I think that they try and do uh, the best they can, but a lot of times... <clears throat> That's that's not good enough, and uh, and they can sure use some help. These are the guys that uh, that have put their lives on the line. And, and would you agree with any kind of uh, missions that's ever going on? Uh, it doesn't matter because the the next mission that uh, our soldiers are fighting in could be a mission that you totally agree with, and that is defending uh, uh, you directly. Uh, then uh, we want to we want to do everything we can to help the folks. All right, so uh, Melanie Davis and her organization are going to be out, uh, and we're going to try and raise some money for them. We've got uh, a big group of runners this year. About uh, well, imagine about 120, 130 runners so far, and we have a brand new video out. That uh, that Charles Weedman, uh, a movie director and producer, uh, he directed. As a matter of fact, he was on the show I think just last year when he put out his last movie, which was called The Sinner. Anyway, he came out and he did a uh, a video for us, and uh, it it looks really amazing. I'll try and get the links posted up to that uh, as soon as possible, and. I'll send it out to you. Those of you, those of you folks who have signed up for the uh, the newsletter, uh, 
I'll send the uh I'll send the newsletter out with uh with the link to the video too. And uh the newsletter uh we'll have our first edition from the newsletter coming out <clears throat> uh this next week. Uh, I was gonna try and get it out this week but uh, it's been nonstop uh, work getting the the last details and stuff for the running gun uh, done, but we'll have the first edition of the newsletter out this next week, and uh, the newsletter will be uh, kind of a combination, at least the first one, but of the the stuff from Rifleman Radio and the stuff from Battle Road USA, and uh, and if you only want to be on one or the other. If you don't want to be on both, then you can send me an email, and uh, I'll take your name off one and only put it on the other, or whatever you want to do. But the uh, newsletter will have information coming out that uh, uh, from the Battle Road and from Rifleman Radio. <clears throat> I'm not going to do it tonight, but uh, I believe that uh, I've got some emails from folks that said that I, I guess that Sam had mentioned uh, not last week but week before that uh, that Appleseed had dumped uh, uh, they had completely uh, sliced any ties that they had uh, with us promoting Appleseed. Uh, there's a radio show and stuff, and that's fine. If they want to do that, that's fine. I'm still going to promote Appleseed because it's a great program. Uh, there are some problems with it, and and in a show, uh, not next week, but in a show coming up, we'll we'll talk about those. But uh, the Appleseed Project on the ground and the instructors who are doing events, some of the greatest folks you'll ever meet. <clears throat> All right, we're going to get uh, we're going to get uh, uh, Mr. Stock up and Mr. Uh, Hughes on the line here in just a second. Sam is calling them up, and uh, and then we'll get started with the show. As I said, the uh, Transworld Airlines Flight 800 crashed off the coast of Long Island. Uh, on July 17, 1996, uh, at around 8.30 or so uh, Eastern time. This is approximately 12 minutes after takeoff. And uh, it was a flight, an international flight to Rome that was going to stop over in Paris. All 230 people on board were killed. And this was the third deadliest aviation accident to occur in American history. And... Uh, uh, it, it is. Uh, it was. It was reported in many uh, in many different ways. Uh, the the uh, the news started out saying that uh, witnesses had seen uh, what they had thought appeared to be missiles. And uh, and then after that, uh, there were there was like a steady degrade in the information. 
and then uh, Sam, as soon as you get uh, as soon as you get those folks on the line, if you'll uh, if you'll give me a if you'll let me know, we've got. Uh, uh, I believe that uh, Mr. Hughes' phone dropped. If you get them, if you get them back on the line, uh, maybe you can. Uh, Maybe you can get them to call in instead of us calling. I don't know if that will uh, if that will help keep them from dropping. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out. Uh, okay. If you will work on uh, on the other one, then we'll we'll try and get that back up. <clears throat> Uh, that's before we have uh, Mr. Tom Salkup, uh producer of TWA Flight 800, and also narrated the the documentary. And uh, I believe that it is uh, it's a fantastic documentary, and I believe what it shows to be what is the the most well documented cover up uh, in, in American history. And Sam says that uh, we have Mr. Stalkup on the line. Mr. Stalkup, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I, listen, I want to tell you that how much I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out tonight and, uh, and, and speaking to us. I'm sure that, I'm sure that you have plenty of, uh, uh, plenty of folks asking you to, to, to speak with them, and, uh, and we're honored that you were that you were taking the time to speak with us. Uh, now, for the folks who haven't watched the documentary, you go into a bit of an explanation there of the of of how you got started or why you got started. Uh, I just told folks how the how it was reported that uh, on July 17th, 1996, at 8:31. Uh, p.m. Eastern Time, approximately 12 minutes after the, the flight had taken off from uh, JFK Airport. That's where it originated, on a, uh, on a uh, transatlantic flight to Paris. The aircraft exploded in midair and then uh, crashed into the sea. Can you tell us uh, uh, kind of how you, how you got involved in... In the, in the in this whole uh, in in the investigation of it and then making the documentary. Yeah, sure. Um, I was actually sitting on my couch and just flipping the channels, and then the CIA came on TV, and it seemed very interesting to me. Uh, never been spoken directly to by the CIA before on the national broadcast, <laughs> um, but you know, yeah, it was very interesting. And the CIA emblem, a, a deep authoritative narrator saying things like it was not a missile, you know, very loudly and in an authoritative voice. And it seemed like they were telling us what it wasn't rather than what it was, and, and that got my attention. And So that night I, I, I had a dial-up connection. This is 1996. I think only half the country or less were on the Internet at that time. But, you know, I was lucky, lucky enough to have a dial-up connection into in the laboratory I worked at and uh, found quite quickly that the CAA uh, video and their, their, their narration was actually inaccurate. And I thought to myself, boy, I didn't, you know, my, my initial feelings were correct. This, this was odd. 
and there's something wrong here. And I verified those suspicions by, uh, you know, first thing I did, I came across the account of Air National Guard uh, helicopter captain Chris Bauer, who, who saw an object strike another object, and he said the first object uh, I later learned was was a rocket-type motor, which had pyrotechnic coming out of it. And he said, just like, you know, they, they fire these things that he's seen in the military. You know, those, this, he was the first to arrive in search and rescue, and there were many other witnesses that corroborate his account, you know, not with an expert detail, but, you know, lay people saying, oh, it looked like a firework that went up there and exploded. But no firework goes 2.6 miles up. But, you know, that, that's what actually happened. Something did go 2.6 miles up to take that plane down. Bauer believes it's a missile, and uh, so do many others. And what the CIA video said was, oh, these witnesses were surprised they didn't see two objects in the sky. Well, Bauer did see two objects in the sky. One was distinctly coming from a different direction than the other and uh, caused the other one to explode, according to him. And that's consistent well, you, with many other eyewitness accounts. Well, you saw the, uh, you saw the CIA animated uh, doc, uh, it's not a documentary, the animated explanation. And listen, I, I, I looked that up and I watched it too, and I've got to tell you, that's it's got to be one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen because, as you said, uh, they've got it, it will repeatedly have a full screen. It will have the words, not a missile, underlined, and then the narrator will come in in a deep voice intoning that exact thing, not a missile. Uh, well, just, over a, just imagine, yeah, just imagine sitting on your couch, you know, maybe Sunday, I don't remember what day it was, you know, flipping channels with your wife or, or whatnot, or a bunch of friends, and imagine, you know, watching a football game and having that come on. Now, I don't think it was a football <laughs> game I was watching, but it was just like it. I was flipping channels, and, and, and it just came on TV. It was, it was like you said, it's bizarre watching it on YouTube today. But, you know, when you go ahead and you're actually sitting, and it's a live broadcast from CNN coming directly to you, that makes it even, 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 more, even more strange. Stranger. Well, I'd like I'd like to come back to the to the CIA uh, animation in just a minute, but but so once you saw that, you it it caused the wheels to start turning in your head and it caused you to become intrigued. What did you do uh, from there? How did it how did it start uh, coming together? Well, let me just tell you, I'm feeling a, hearing a beeping from my local phone here. I might have to switch phones. This thing might go out. But I'll, I'll talk as long as I can until the battery runs out. <clears throat> this is my home phone. It's a wireless. It's not a cell phone. Um, let's see. So the next thing I did was I, I didn't know what to believe at that point. I'm on the Internet reading this article by Aviation Week and Space Technology, you know, three, three places removed from the actual eyewitness who was in a Black Hawk helicopter that night. And then I, and then I also compared that to what I just saw on TV by the CIA. So I, I didn't really, really know what to believe. And so... You know, I, I, I tended to believe the Internet over the CIA uh, just because, uh, you know, just the sources involved, the Aviation Week Space Technology, you know, anyone who wrote, right. you know, who copied that, you know, they would have been, you know, shot down right away if they, uh, if they were lying about it. But, you know, still I wasn't sure. And so I ended up finding uh, eyewitness names who had been reported in the news and calling them up directly, talking directly to the people who saw the accident. And I asked them if they happened to watch the CIA animation, and several of them did. And I asked them, what did you think of it? And they said it was a bunch of BS. You know, they didn't come to interview me to see what I said I saw. They, they, it, it didn't represent what I saw at all. And one person even told me, hey, I saw the object come off the surface and take down that plane. You know, the plane was not at the surface. It was really high up. 
you know, things like this. And this is what they're telling me, you know, as a graduate student in Florida, you know, just, just getting into it. You know, it was the first thing I did make some a few phone calls, and uh, several of them were to some eyewitnesses. And uh, it's very, very interesting um, shift in my paradigm. You know, I, I was a graduate student studying physics, and now I'm coming across this, like you said, one of the biggest cover-ups in history. And, um, and I, you know, I, I kind of agree with that. Biggest and, and I think most brazen. There's enough uh, information in the public domain right now that will um, convince anyone, any 60 Minutes producer, any frontline producer, any New York Times um, journalist who seriously looks into this, there's something wrong and they could, you know, get plenty of ratings if, if they put their, their documentary on, on national TV and expose this thing. And it, it is. It's, not it's, the most, it's the most well-documented right. cover-up that, that you can imagine. I, I, I've, because, during research for the, for the show and stuff, and after talking to you, after seeing the documentary, I started digging, and, and the stuff you put on uh, in the documentary was fantastic, the evidence and stuff like that. And, and then I found uh, just tons more that is it's right out there. People can look, and you can, and you can see it, and I'm just amazed at, at how well-documented the actual cover-up is. Yes, yes, it's a it's a uh, open cover up, a de facto cover up, an information age cover up. It's all of the above. It, it's it's a cover up out in the open, and the only time it'll be officially acknowledged is when the official news media um, steps up and, and does their part. And they haven't yet, and, and we're hoping, uh, based on some um, some legal pressures we're putting on the government now, based on uh, some petitions we're sending to the National Transportation Safety Board, that they do the right thing. However, you know. Sometimes, as you probably know, uh, federal agencies don't do the right thing until there's public pressure. So it's kind of a catch-22. That's right. So, yeah. That's so right. really. So you you yeah. you you started calling the witnesses, and and I'd like everybody to remember that that Mr. Stockup is not a uh, he's not a uh, any type of uh, investigator. I mean, you are now. I think you're a really great investigator now. But at the time, you were a graduate student uh, or postgraduate student in physics. And you were doing your doctor, your doctoral studies, right? Yes, that's correct. And uh, and this caught your attention, and you started digging into it. And pretty soon, you went into this full time into the investigation of it. That's correct. Um, about I'd say about halfway, three quarters of the way through graduate school, I made the conscious decision that you know um, uncovering this cover up which actually is the tip of the iceberg for for other problems in our country and, and our media uh, establishment is more important than becoming a uh, a physicist and i did end up getting my doctorate um, however at that time i made the decision that there are more important things to do in this world and i dedicated my life uh, to um, you know exposing this in in an effort to um, help uh, the american people uh, realize what, what actually can be, can happen, and 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 and, and the sickness that I, that I see in, in our media establishment that that I really think needs to be fixed for our democracy to be healthy. You know, you said something uh, in the documentary that has stuck with me ever since I heard you say it, and you were discussing uh, the. Uh, I'm not going to repeat exactly what you said, but you said it was a it was a watershed moment in history because. The government uh, actually figured out. Now, now we know that the government has is no stranger to lying to the public. I mean, 
you know, sometimes they do it for good reasons and sometimes for bad. Uh, but that this this particular event, I think, was the first time that the government had ever realized they could get away with so much, even in the information age. And I think it changed. I think it's changed the way that they deal with the American public too. And I, I was just amazed at that theory, at that the fact that that even though this, it, it seemed to me that the way that the investigation and the way that the cover-up started spinning up, it wasn't something, certainly wasn't something planned out, but they started going with it and rolling with it, and they started seeing how uh, how much they could actually get away with. And I think that that has colored how they how they interact with American citizens now. Right. I mean, what what I'm thinking of when you're talking right now is, you know, it's the investigation and who are the officials, the official spokespeople and the leadership of these organizations. It doesn't take, you know, a thousand FBI agents to, to, to get in a room and say, hey, we've got to cover this up. No, they were doing their job. Most of the people did a great job. But you have a few corrupt officials at the top that, that make the decisions and, and the media not challenging what they're saying. And that, that's, all, that's all that's happened here. I mean, our documentary, what we showed was that the people under these officials didn't agree with it. I spoke to uh, the people who were actually inside the hangar, and many of them show up in our documentary and step forward and blow the whistle on this thing, and they, they told me a majority of the people on the ground looking at the wreckage did not agree with the official theory. So this is something that I think that the New York Times should have been doing. I think the, uh, exactly. you know, you know the, why weren't they talking to the people handling the wreckage? And to this day, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dismayed. Well, I think that I think that our media and our government have as so have slowly but surely uh, developed a, a horribly incestuous relationship, and I think that the government has a lot more power now than uh, than they previously had, and uh and I think that uh, they're able to dictate a lot of of what the media says. I think that uh, I think we may have just lost uh, Tom. He said he was uh, uh, his phone may have been going out. If you can uh, if you can be watching for him, Sam, uh, or maybe maybe try and call him back in a minute or something and see if we can get him on a different phone to come in. But uh, it's it's, it's correct timing because I wanted to introduce Mr. Hank Hughes. Mr. Hughes was the uh, lead NTSB uh, investigator for the TWA Flight 800 crash. So he's, uh, this is not, these folks that, uh, that you're hearing from, uh, these aren't uh, people who think they know something or they heard something. These are the people who were there, who were, who it was their job to investigate the crash. Uh, Mr. Hughes, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I want to tell you that, that I really appreciate uh, you coming, not just coming on tonight. I do appreciate that, but I, I really appreciate you taking a stand on this and, and trying to make sure that the word gets out uh, on what happened. Uh, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like for you to to tell folks how uh, 
or what your role was uh, in the crash investigation. Sure. Uh, I was a senior action investigator with NTSB, and I've spent about 42 years in, as an investigator in one form or another, a police officer, uh, military intelligence specialist, that sort of thing, and I spent 26 years in NTSB. Uh, I only say that because I, I've been around investigative processes most of my adult life, since I left high school probably. Uh, the TWA investigation started out like a normal major crash investigation, normal for a, for an NTSB type. But I, I noticed when we arrived on scene, uh, the, the inordinate number of uh, FBI and other law enforcement folks uh, at the uh, Coast Guard station at Mauritius, New York, which is the, sort of the uh, basic uh, area that they set up as a command post, uh, within a day or two of the, uh, of the crash, I was assigned by the director of the Office of Aviation Safety to set up a, a reconstruction area for the aircraft. Now, all this time I kept hearing from our headquarters, don't get too involved, it's going to be a missile. Don't get too involved, it's going to be a missile. And I said to the, to the director of aviation safety, uh, look, whether it's a missile or a plane crash, it's either one of the greatest transportation accidents in American history or one of the greatest mass murders. We're going to have to be there. It's not a building. The FBI is going to need some help. Regardless of how it works, we need to put this airplane back together. We found a facility on Long Island. It was a, uh, had been a defense plant where they, they made uh, Tomcats that had been uh, demilled, and we basically went over, looked at the, uh, the hangar. It had some you know, heavy-duty cranes and other things that we needed, and I established a... Uh, a reconstruction area for the, the uh, fuselage and major components of the airplane. After I set that hangar up, I was requested by uh, the assistant director of the FBI, Mr. Kallstrom, uh, through my boss to reconstruct the inside of the airplane, something a lot of people haven't seen. And I moved to a different hangar where we re reconstructed approximately 95% of the cockpit, the upper deck, the passenger compartments and the uh, cargo bays of the airplane in that hangar. Uh, it was interesting when I first got there, there were probably a hundred FBI and ATF agents in the hangar. They weren't gainfully employed per se, uh, but it was interesting because the ATF agents were banished to sitting on uh, at picnic tables and not allowed to do any work. And this was well, a need. Let me ask you about that. Yeah. The because this was not, I mean, you were the uh, a senior investigator at this project, which meant that you weren't brand new at this. You, you'd you been doing these investigations for quite a while, and you'd seen quite a few. I don't, yep. I don't know if you'd ever seen one exactly like this, but yes, one I of the things that struck me is, can you, I, I wanted to ask you specifically, uh, I kept asking you, uh, my wife has, she's had to listen to me ask you on the TV over and over again, uh, to to explain that the investigation started off uh, unlike any other investigation that you had previously experienced, right? Yes. Yeah, what, what it boiled down to is the NTSB has primacy. We're in charge of an investigation until such time as there's evidence that a crime had been committed, which is certainly understandable. But we, we would 
worked together in the past. Very rarely did we see the FBI show up on anything. Uh, but in this case, they showed up in force. Uh, there were two NTSB investigators in that hangar with a hundred or so FBI agents and ATF folks, uh, Dr. Berkey and, uh, from the NTSB and myself. And um, finally, I, I got a little bit frustrated with And finally, I said, you know, if you don't want to get your hands dirty, and I went to the ATF supervisor and I said, uh, you know, we're going to reconstruct the inside of the airplane. I need some help, and to their credit, and they also know more about explosives, by the way, than the FBI does. They got a lot more experience at it. Uh, they volunteered 20 ATF agents to help, and I have to say, in in all fairness, they did a magnificent job. They worked hard. They were honest. Uh, they knew how to handle evidence, and they worked with my team quite well. Well, is it is is it normal for for any investigators on a scene, regardless of whether it's been determined to be uh, a crime where the FBI would have uh, primacy, is it is it normal that some of the investigation team is cut out of the investigation? No, never. And in this case, it was not only not only did the uh, FBI not share all the information with the NTSB, who should have been in charge. But the parties to the investigation, in, in an NTSB investigation, we would have included TWA, the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, mechanics, the airline mechanics, flight attendant unions, and other people that were experts in different aspects of, of that airplane and that airline operation. Uh, but the FBI was very distrusting of them, and at their direction, or urgence, I should say, the uh, the NTSB altered our, their own rules and would not provide them with the information that they had a right to and, and that we needed to share with them. Well, see, that's what I don't understand is because I would think that uh, now I could see it if they said, all right, uh, we've already determined that this is an attack by a terrorist organization and uh, – and they fired a missile, and 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 we're going to investigate this. But but from early on, even though there were reports, and I'll go back to that in a minute, there were reports of yeah. folks seeing what they thought was a missile. Early on, they already they were already starting to spin up that it was not a it was not going to be determined to be a criminal investigation. And yet, the FBI remained uh, as the as the agency in charge of dissemination of information and also uh, of, de of determining who could look at what and see what. Yeah. Uh, early on in the documentary, there was a uh, – uh, one of the other investigators was talking about that he saw a piece of uh, the aircraft. Uh, I believe that uh, you guys were talking about it. It may have been part of the leading edge of a wing. That, yeah, that uh, was – that was Jim Spears from the Airline Pilot Association, who's a member of our team, by the way. Uh, all of us are all retired guys, and we're doing this because it's something we believe in and, and no other motive. Uh, right. Jim, well, he Jim, saw that, and he, and he was, he was going to take a photograph, and he was yeah. told he could not take a photograph. Now, is that normal? Is it normal no, for you guys? You guys are the investigators. I would think that that would be yeah. – you'd be absolutely taking photographs not. In fact, everything. In fact, you know, proper forensic protocol would call for him taking a photograph as, as the object as is 
later putting a scale in there like a ruler so you'd have some some aspect as far as you know how big holes were and that sort of thing and the size of the object take another photograph and then at some point you might want to collect residue for chemical sampling Jim was doing exactly what he was trained to do he was an airline pilot association action investigator that was assigned to work with us from airline pilots association he was doing the job the way you're supposed to but as soon as he recognized that there were some anomalies, some things that didn't look right, the information that he had was hustled off by the FBI, who precluded him, precluded him from taking any photographs. They did chemical testing that came out positive for nitrates, that is to say, explosive residue, and then tried to backpedal and say, well, it's a false positive. It went back to Washington, D.C., along with many, many other samples for testing. We talked to the former head of the FBI lab, who's also a member of our team, by the way. He's the guy that blew the whistle on the FBI lab because of the, the corruption as far as evidence uh, evaluation was concerned. man has a Ph.D. in chemistry, was an FBI agent for over 20 years, and has a law degree. He's an impeccable character who said that there's absolutely no no validity to any of these false positive tests. We never got the results back. All we got was there were false positives, there were no nitrates. It made right. no sense, and that's one of many, many strange things that happened, the most significant of which happened early on. The yeah, NTS just to clarify, Hank, uh, yeah. We were yeah, denied. Uh, I know a lot of folks know that yeah that your that your mic is open and then just jump in whenever you're ready. But the well, yeah, I just we, clarify. we had uh, 577 witnesses who were reasonable, prudent, decent people who had no reason to come forth other than to provide information. Very few of whom knew each other. All of whom were located in different areas around a, a multi-mile radius who were saying the same thing. We weren't even allowed to read their interviews. Many of the interviews I wasn't able to be privy to until Tom and the rest of the team and I interviewed them in New York seven, what was it, 15 years after the fact because I was denied that information along with my teammates. That's unbelievable. Mr. Stalkup, go ahead, go ahead and, and jump in there. Yeah, it's one point of clarification. Yeah, that, that chemist that we that's on our team, the, the, the PhD in chemistry and the law degree, uh, he, uh, just to clarify, he said uh, there's no validity to their false positive claims. Uh, if, if it detected explosives, there is validity to that test, and it, it means that the explosives were certainly detected and they were there. And that's what he verified to us. And anyone who said that it's a false positive didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. Right, and this is that, that gentleman was the, the – uh, the supervisory agent in charge of the FBI laboratory during that time. Is that correct? Yep. Tom also and, uh, went a step further and went to the manufacturer of the equipment that did the testing and talked actually talked to the man who invented the machine and and talked to him about the facts and circumstances and he validated what the what our our, our FBI agent uh, told us. Right. Yeah, another I did, PhD. Uh, the research on that machine too, and they and that machine was absolutely at at the, the at the time and still is was the the height 
of uh, of technological ability in order to determine, even down to uh, what was it? I believe it was uh, down to small uh, picogram amounts that it could positively identify and uh, and give the source of. That's correct. Well, yeah. the the investigation from the very beginning then is. It's just it's just bizarre because they have they have twisted it the the investigation the investigators you guys the guys who would be whatever determination you came through folks would be willing to accept um, except in this case they're not allowing you to do your investigation, and they're not allowing you to, to publish what you found. Now, the guy that, uh, that was running the, I guess, the head of the, the FBI investigation at the time, uh, I noticed that early on he was actually saying that people were, uh, were giving reports that they had seen objects that they believed to be missiles, uh, coming from the ground up, and he, he was actually doing this on the news, but then as time went on, the story began to change. Matter of fact, it changed uh, to such a radical, uh, took such a radical turn that later on in his testimony, uh, I don't, I don't remember if, if it was to, to Congress or to the NTSB board, but. There's a point in there on the documentary where you guys have him, and he's saying, they asked him, how many people saw what they believed to be a missile? And he said, no one. And and yet, he, even at that time, he had to know that there were uh, that there were dozens, if not hundreds already at that time, that were saying, that that's exactly what they were saying. They are saying, I saw a what I believe to be a missile. Let, let me give you one example of one of the witnesses that they tried to discredit and discount. Uh, the man, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I mentioned his name, is Fred Meyer, a highly decorated naval officer during the Vietnam War. He flew search and rescue helicopters, risked his life many times, in fact saved pilots that were shot down in North Vietnam. He'd been shot at himself and knew what missiles looked like. He and his crew were up on a training mission. He was working. He was flying with the uh, New York Air National Guard as a SAR pilot, search and rescue pilot. They were on a training mission and observed the whole thing. He recounted, along with his crew chief and co-pilot, in great detail exactly what they saw. All these years later, he has not changed his story one word. He explained it, and it, it jived with the with the radar evidence that Tom extrapolated. And it also was corroborated by 577 other people in various degrees of, of uh, uh, specificity. But right, completely, well, thought, completely disconcerted, uh, what he said. And he was right. just one. We had, we had, you know, the superintendent of school saw the thing. A former uh, principal. We had nurses. We had ships captains. We had, had hard-working people that were honest, and the FBI actually checked out their veracity and said, hey, yeah, these are good, honest people. And then they take the information they provided and throw it in the trash can and wouldn't let us see it. 
Well, I was watching the uh, when you guys were were giving your report to the family members and to the witnesses. Uh, there was one lady there that was talking about, or, or, or the these were the witnesses that had been interviewed by the FBI. Yeah. One lady was talking that uh, she had been inter- by, interviewed by the FBI, that they'd come and talk to her, and they had written down uh, the uh, information that she provided. But then at the end, when they got ready to go, they closed their notebook, they stood up, and they said, uh, we understand that you are uh, have your paperwork in to become an American citizen. Is that correct? And she said, yes. You know, She was waiting for them to, to call her back. She was, she was just about done. And they told her that... Uh, that if that it would be a good thing if she kept her mouth shut and didn't say anything. Now the the camera in the documentary, the camera switched to you right at that moment, and I could see that yeah. that that was a surprise to you. Yes, it was because I was never never provided with that information, and the fact that that a representative of the United States government would speak to anybody that way was absolutely appalling. And well, that, he, she wasn't the only one that was threatened or intimidated or attempts were intimidated. And, and the fact is, these people continued to come forward all these years later with the same story they told from the beginning without deviation because they, have, they had the, 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 the moral turpitude, the, the courage to stand up for what's right. right. But, and you know, for a government, a government official to do that or say that, to any person, especially a person who's trying to provide helpful information about a terrible tragedy, is absolutely unconscionable. Right, right, and that's that's one of the things that uh, that that I wanted to mention, and that is, like you said, that wasn't the only uh, that was the only witness that testified or or that gave uh, they gave reports to you guys. That they had been intimidated. That there was, there were multiple ones, and my question is, is what what could ever be a justifiable reason that the FBI would attempt to intimidate someone into not giving testimony or to giving or to keeping their mouth shut? I'm willing to listen. If there, if there isn't any, they, right? There isn't there any. Be. And like you said, these these are not uh, these weren't these weren't a bunch of uh, of college kids in their backyards at a beer party. These are decorated uh, uh, American uh, veterans. Uh, these are these are all people who I'm telling you, I listen to their I listen yeah. to their recounting of the stories, and I got to tell you that they were one to me. They were one hundred percent believable and they are. For, for them to be for them to be intimidated I, I, I cannot fathom any reason that would fit uh, that would be an answer for why they would be and I keep telling folks uh, when I when I was getting ready to do this the show tonight all the way up for the last uh, couple of months I would tell folks uh, you know, that I'd like for them to listen to the show and to see the documentary. And I would get folks that would tell me, look, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy fan, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And I, I said, that's fine. Yeah. 
That's great. Well, you know, it's, this, isn't it's, a, this isn't a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy yes, well, theory is when you have somebody that's trying to lay something out on somebody or, or to try and say it's some, uh, there's some type of thing going on. This, what you guys did in the documentary is simply uh, a factual uh, telling of the account of what happened. You guys didn't try and suggest anything. You just told what happened. And it is all documented and witnessed uh, uh, information. When we began the process and we joined together as a team, the, the retired investigators and Tom and, and Christina Borgeson, the director, uh, who did, did a magnificent job, I think we all owe her a lot, we all agreed from day one not one word was going to go into the documentary or our petition for reconsideration with the safety board that wasn't documented, absolute documented fact. And if you look at the documentary, you'll see that there are no opinions, it's just fact, and the facts say that it was a cover-up, pure and simple. Right, right, and 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 all of the stuff that's reported is, is none of this is conjecture, none of this is a, a theory, it is simply the stuff that actually happened. When you talk about the FBI... Uh, preventing the uh, the investigative agents from taking photographs. For, for they prevented other agencies from participating. But that's not that's not the end of their level uh, of I, I think of malpractice in this because you uh, you guys actually uh, have evidence. You caught FBI agents coming into the the hangar where the evidence was stored in the middle of the night and. I believe one of the agents was actually uh, attempting to alter, physically alter evidence, like uh, banging a piece of the aircraft fuselage flat, right? Yes, his name was Ricky, special agent, formerly special agent Ricky Hunt. And I walked in and couldn't believe it. And I w walked out to the in the layout area of the hangar, and they, well, I mentioned a few expletives and said, what in the world are you doing? And he didn't have a reason for it. But there, there are so many, so many situations that occur like that. It's, it's would take hours to to explain them all. But it is an, an absolute fact. And that wasn't the only instance. And there was, uh, uh, in addition, they, they, if this was an actual, if they were actually doing a crime investigation, as they said that they were, then it should have adhered. To uh, to what are fairly normal uh, criminal investigative procedures. And, uh, such well, as, there, there uh, was a problem there. There were 28 FBI evidence recovery teams assigned to the TWA investigation. They came out for a two-week period. 22 of the 28 had never received any forensic training. Uh, in terms of crime scene processing or accident scene processing. In fact, it got to a point where whenever a two-week stint was up and the new team came out, I did a four-hour orientation class for the FBI to teach these folks how to process the evidence. They didn't know how. Well, like, uh, there's, uh, there's evidence or there's reports that, that things like... Uh, uh, when they recover the evidence and the, the the bodies and stuff like that, all of the clothing they said from the passengers, which yep. should have been treated as evidence just as well as anything else, that all the all the clothing 
was all mixed together and stuffed uh, in together wet, and and they, uh, that caused mold to grow, and they and the clothes to deteriorate, and then mm. any chance of of being able to investigate investigate the clothing uh, was destroyed by that. Well, yeah, and in fact, uh, <laughs> I was. They they put it in a refrigerated trailer, and then they didn't realize over a holiday weekend that uh, reefer units on trailers need to have diesel fuel. Uh, one of the FBI agents, uh, to her credit, and she was a very capable person that, that worked hard, and I put on complete biohazard equipment, went into the trailer, brought everything out and separated it, and and found evidence that should have been do- should have been documented. Uh, that hadn't been, but it certainly didn't help matters. Well, I'm just, uh, like you said, there was, I'm sure you could speak for hours on this, hours on how it was mishandled and the, uh, and the way that, that you guys were prevented from doing your job. Now, uh, you guys were also reporting that all of the evidence that was recovered, and it was recovered in basically uh, there were three debris fields uh, yep. from the plane. That the the three debris fields, it was when the stuff was recovered, that it was only being recovered by, uh, or that the the uh, the evidence went straight from the recovery on the the seabed floor to the FBI, and then they would determine what was passed on to to whatever other agencies. Is that right? Uh, it it was a little bit more complicated than that. Basically, there were three debi- debris fields along what would have been the flight path, red, yellow, and green. And as each item was recovered, the uh, U.S. Navy salvage divers, who I might say did a magnificent job, under perilous conditions, as they would they would find a, a piece of wreckage to recover or a victim, they would document the GPS position and provide that information, which was put on a tag, a metal tag, that was in turn brought back to the hangar. And then we had uh, uh, some folks that uh, took that information and, and input it into uh, some computer files. Uh, later on, we found somebody in the hangar from NTSB who was changing these tags arbitrarily, and I took great exception to it along with my team. And uh, we notified the, our, our superiors that there was a problem, and it wound up uh, having a meeting with my entire team being assembled, which included four New York State troopers, uh four people from TWA, an FAA inspector. And uh, we went back and looked at those tags, and, and they had improperly changed all of those tags, yet nothing was changed. And then later, uh, a fraudulent memorandum to justify it was generated. And, uh, uh, and unfortunately, when the public hearing came up, in addition to no witnesses being allowed to testify at the public hearing, which is totally contrary to NTSB policy before and after TWA, uh, we weren't allowed to have any any discussion 
with regard to the tags other than to uh, have an executive from the uh, Department of the Navy uh, talk about things in general terms. Well, let's talk about that for a second because uh, it's, I don't think a lot of folks understand that if they say, well, change the tax, what does that do? Well, it can do a lot because the the way that uh, the way that a plane comes apart can tell you a good deal about why it came apart or what happened during the crash, what happened during the event. And the as things come off the aircraft, it's, they're going to be then affected by gravity and, and they're going to fall. The things that fall first uh, and second or third uh, tell a great deal about what could possibly be the reason that uh, that the event occurred. So if you change the tag and you say, well, this one was, uh, you guys have three fields, I believe, a red, uh, yellow, and green field. Right. Uh, if you changed it and said, well, this didn't come down first, it came down last, well, that, could, that could really drastically affect uh, the outcome of an investigation. So changing the tags was, was really... Uh, a big deal. It's not a small deal. It was a big deal, and I believe that you you mentioned even during the documentary that that you felt that a lot of that was actually technically illegal. Yes, it was. It's called exfoliation of evidence, and I can recall early on we were going back to Washington to give a briefing to our senior managers, and. Uh, I noticed that the individual from NTSB who had been assigned, who was not a qualified investigator, a relatively new employee, had changed tags. And I said, well, what did you do this for? Why, You've got all the red tags in the red zone and the yellow tags in the yellow zone and the green tags in the green zone. It didn't happen that way. You know, with, with air currents, the aerodynamic properties of parts, the weight of some of the parts, thermoclines in the water, there are there are some reasons why some of those parts might have landed from the red zone, say, in the yellow zone, uh, or the yellow uh, zone in the green zone. And, Mr. and his only explanation was, I didn't want to confuse this, I didn't want to confuse the, uh, the board members or senior managers in Washington, and uh, to which I said, that's absolutely, I told him, I said, that's exfoliation of evidence, it's illegal. And I said, it can easily be explained. You don't ever do that again. Right. And, of course, he did, but he was a lot more sneaky about it. <laughs> well, let's talk about, and, and like I, I wanted to mention, <coughs> Mr. Stalkup, you're, you're, you're back on, so whenever you, whenever you want to jump in, just, you just jump in. Uh, okay. Let's talk about, for a minute, the, the, the stated cause the crash, then they were determined that TWA Flight 800 uh, crashed because of a center fuel tank explosion that uh, somehow something ignited the, and I believe that the center fuel tank on this plane was, it was not filled to capacity, right? There was... Uh, it was uh, almost empty. Right. So, it, so the, it, it, it could have, uh, well, most certainly had uh, vapors in it, and they said that the explosion uh, was, that's how they, uh, that's what they determined it to be, even though uh, every investigator that was interviewed uh, 
said that there was never any uh, information or any evidence that would have led to that determination. Right. Here, let me jump on this one, Hank. Sure. Um, yeah, we. that's what they said, and yes, theoretically, if you put a spark in there, if it's the right temperature, the right uh, oxygen content, theoretically could explode. But the uh, fact that, you know, these 747s are inside Arabia flying with the exact same amount of fuel in the center fuel tanks, and this just doesn't happen, no matter how hot you get these planes, um, hasn't happened before, hasn't happened since, um, reduces the credibility of that, that theory. Um, but what we actually did... Um, for this documentary was we did a ballistics analysis on the radar information of the explosion. The actual explosion which caused the crash is actually captured on radar. And that's a high-velocity explosion. We proved it uh, based on ballistics uh, uh, curve fitting to the data. And the NTSB knows this now, and they're working on it. Hopefully they're going to come to the, come around and correct their, their, their theory. But just to, just to educate your, uh, your listeners there, the, the official theory is a forward-moving, low-velocity fuel-air deflagration. And all deflagration means is it's an explosion that's slower than the speed of sound. Forward-moving, everyone gets that, it moves forward. Well, on radar, there's a sideways-moving, perpendicular aircraft consistent with the object witnesses saw, high-velocity explosion. And so it's physically impossible to have the official theory match what the radar evidence and the eyewitnesses, by the way, said what happened. So their theory, they're in a corner. They, they really have nowhere to go. Um, we, we had a meeting with them, I believe, a few months back, and we, we did a, a simulation comparing their debris tra trajectories with the radar data actually shows. And I think my words when we showed the film was, or the, uh, the new animations we created, which we haven't released publicly yet, was, uh, you know, not even close. You know, th their, their theory is basically you get a dandelion that fully has its spores. You know, after it's yellow, it's got the spores that fly, and they blow and they fly away. Well, if you take a dandelion, you throw it. And you have all the spores will just follow it gently behind and drift with the wind. Well, that's basically what the theory is. Uh, the plane was falling, and these pieces just shed off and, and went directly behind it like a tail. And that's exactly what their debris trajectories show. On radar, right. I'm just saying, saying this many different ways, just so everyone gets it, didn't happen. High velocity, perpendicular, something happened really fast, coinciding with the lost electrical power, and, by the way, coinciding the trajectory of an object seen by many eyewitnesses. Right, and if you have a if you have a uh, a fuel vapor explosion, and you, you can't have them, and they are dangerous, but they the velocity of the explosion and the way it worked is much different than a high ordnance uh, type of explosion. You know, you see the the people's vehicles they catch on fire and the gas tank explodes, and certainly. Certainly that could kill you because it will burn you to death, but it doesn't blow you to pieces. Uh, well, theoretically, it's a much lower explosion. Theoretically, theoretically, if it was just the right conditions in that tank, it actually could have detonated. It, could have, it actually could have been a, a high-velocity detonation in that tank. It definitely it could have, theoretically. But they reconstructed that center wing tank, and they found out it was a low-velocity um, over-pressurization right. inside that tank based on the reconstruction. So they knew based on the reconstruction that it was not a detonation. On mm -hmm. radar, we know it was a detonation. It wasn't a fuel tank detonation because we know the fuel tank didn't detonate. So, so that, that's, I, why I say right. that, that's why they're in a corner. Yeah. Can I add a few words to that, if you don't mind? Yes, sir. Uh, 
my my team and I reconstructed the center fuel tank in miniature based on the the pieces to scale and that sort of thing, and it showed a you know low low ordnance deflagration, so to speak. If anything, it certainly wasn't a high ordnance explosion. The NTSB went to Bruntingthorpe, England. I was supposed to go with them, and then at the last minute they told me that I wasn't uh, wasn't going to go uh, to do a test. And they had to overcharge that tank so much with propane that they blew the top of the airplane off. Uh, that didn't happen. Another another uh, significant aspect of this too is, and and it was brought up by uh, Bob Young, one of our our teammates, but I think it's very important in the history of commercial aviation. There have been two center fuel tank explosions on 747s. One was a Philippines airline, and in that case, there was a bomb under a passenger seat that blew it up. Right. right. The other is TWA Flight 800. If you look at the probable cause of the of the accident investigation by NTSB in their final report, and also look at the documentary, uh, the uh, video of the final board meeting, the person responsible for systems investigation for NTSB, Mr. Robert Swain, says, Equivoc without any equivocation at all, we found no evidence to support the fact that a, a chafed wire or other uh, uh, piece of equipment caused the explosion. Right. Hey, and you didn't, guys, they and didn't they reconstruct the fuel gauge and it worked fine? Oh yeah, and the fuel and and I, I heard some people say, well, it was a scavenger pump. Well, I worked a case, I investigated a KC-135 explosion in Arizona many years ago, where a scavenger pump caused a, an explosion. Uh, we looked at that. We found those parts. You know, part of our job is is to count all the fingers and toes, so to speak, almost like with a newborn baby. When we look at a wreckage of an aircraft, we want to recover all of the parts because the black boxes don't tell you everything by any means, and you want to account for all of the components of the airplane and look at whether or not they were functional. We accounted for that, and there was no evidence to support the fact that chafe wiring, a scavenger pump, or any other component in the center fuel tank caused it to uh, cause the plane explode. Well, even if, it, even if the, the center fuel tank did explode and did explode in that fashion. Uh, you guys are doing the same thing that that any investigation team does, like in house fires, anything like that. So you reconstruct the aircraft and you were able to look at the pieces and parts of it as you put it back together, and you can determine from that uh, to to uh, to some degree anyway uh, if the center fuel tank exploded and that. Uh, and the and cause a uh, you know the fire and stuff like that, then there would there should be a pattern uh, that stretches from the tank back into the aircraft, and that also should uh, should be recorded uh, like in the wounds that the the passengers receive and on their on their passenger seats and stuff like that. Isn't that right? Well, I'm and. That was that was specifically the area of investigation that I was directly responsible for. I supervised the reconstruction of the interior, but I also worked on the medical and pathological investigation, basically uh, an examination of the victims after they were recovered. We found we found a correlation between uh, 
the damage to the interior of the airplane and the passengers, they did roughly correlate. It wasn't exact, but, you know, people have a tendency to move around in an airplane if they're, you know, it wasn't full, so there were a lot of open seats. And after right. takeoff, quite often people will, you know, go migrate to an area where they, they can have a little more room. But they, there was a definite correlation between the interior damage or the physical damage to the interior and the passengers. However, the randomness of destruction of the inside of the airplane and the injury to the passengers, there was absolutely no correlation to. Now, we had two very fine doctors working on the investigation, who were also members of our team, by the way, uh, Colonel Dennis Shanahan, who's probably one of the most unique uh, physicians in the world in, in terms of his credentials, and Dr. Charles Wetney, the chief medical examiner for Suffolk County, New York. And they're both in full agreement with us. The only thing that could have caused that kind of injury to the passengers, or for that matter, the damage to the interior of the aircraft was a high degree of separation, a, a high ordnance event, a high ordnance explosion, not a deflagration, not a center fuel tank explosion. Right, because the passengers, uh, the, the bodies of the passengers, uh, had they actually had fragmentation in the bodies. And uh, I can't, I'll never forget the one photograph in the documentary that you, you guys had of the airline piece that had, uh, I don't know what it, if it was like a femur or a, or, or a fibula or something, but it had a chunk of bone that had been uh, projected and, and pierced the piece of uh, the aircraft wreckage. That doesn't happen from uh, from that type of explosion. I mean, that's a, it took a really severe explosion to to shred somebody up and to project a piece of their bone through a piece of metal. Yep, that's quite true. Well, and one of the big complaints that a lot of the the well the medical staff had at Dr. Wetley's office at the medical examiner was that they were indiscriminately removing. This, uh, as the uh, medical staff methodically conducted the autopsies and did full body x-rays at my request, the FBI was, were taking these foreign bodies, these things that had, had uh, impacted the victims, and commingling them in a, in, a, in a bag. So there was no way to tell what came from who. And that's and very I, important, too. Well, I chalked that up to incompetence. Again, it goes back to lack of training. Right, right. Uh, the uh, the information that was put out uh, in that one clip by the media, uh, the guy that was uh, that was doing the the talking for the media, and I heard. I, I can't tell you looking back through the when I do the research on this and reading the people's arguments and everything, everything else on this, the number of folks that are determined uh, to explain this away by saying that had there been a missile, it, uh, there would have been a hole punched through the aircraft from one side to the other. And, uh, and um, very seldom are those types of, those missiles really aren't used uh, anymore, those types of missiles. Most missiles now are proximity 
uh, fuse-type missiles. Now, you do have some missiles that are heat-seeking. They'll go directly toward whatever the hottest uh, part of the aircraft is and, and explode either in proximity or on impact with it. But here's the thing. The witnesses that saw this, they didn't, a great number of them didn't say, I think I saw something and I don't know what it was. They actually saw uh, a a projectile leave the ground, head out to sea, uh, make a turn back toward the aircraft, pass the aircraft to the rear, and then sling back over and detonate under the left wing. I mean, this isn't... This isn't somebody's theory on what happened. This is what an eyewitness saw. Not just one, but but many. They actually saw the missiles in their flight, in trajectory, and then they saw them explode. And not just one, but multiple missiles. Uh, I don't see how... Uh, I, I, I don't understand how none of the testimony uh, could have been... Uh, was not, was none of the testimony was allowed. I don't understand that. And uh, did anybody ever give any kind of explanation on why, uh, in this case, this one case, that the the testimony wasn't going to be allowed? I know that the the head of the NTSB, the guy that was for this investigation, said that it was because the FBI was conducting the investigation, and that's why nobody was being allowed. No witnesses were being allowed to testify at the board. But has, did anybody ever give any further information on why there were no witness testimony allowed? Well, the FBI had officially bowed out of the investigation uh, by the time the public hearing occurred in Baltimore. And just a few days prior to the uh, board meeting, uh, a memorandum was sent from uh, James Kalstrom, the assistant director of the FBI, to Jim Hall, the chairman of the NTSB, basically requesting that no witnesses be allowed to testify as to what they saw and occurred, something, that, again, that has never happened at the NTSB before or after. Uh, and a memo from Mr. Hall was sent back to Mr. Kalstrom saying that he concurred with that uh, evaluation and Mr. Norm Wehmeyer, who was the NTSB investigator, uh, who diligently tried to track the interviews and conduct interviews and wasn't allowed to do interviews, uh, but in spite of that was able to put a good factual report together, was precluded from providing information at the public hearing. In fact, uh, Norm passed away, sadly, about a year later, but... Uh, he was handing out copies of his factual report like popcorn at a football game because he wanted to get the information out, but he was he was denied the opportunity to do that. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware of it, but when you can, when you're an NTSB investigator, you can't talk about an investigation period, which is why I had to be silent for so long, uh, except before a test uh, my testimony before a Senate Oversight Committee where I told the truth and was ignored. Uh, you know, I was, or nor was, was, were any of the other investigators allowed to speak about it. Hey, Hank, let right. me pick you up on there. Report. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mr. Stockton. Yeah, it's interesting what, what Hank just said there. I mean, you know, from my perspective, I, I just had been done talking to eyewitnesses myself at the time, and, 
you know, had I not seen that CA video, I wouldn't even have probably paid attention to that NTSB hearing. I might have come across it by chance on C-SPAN. I might have kept the channel. But at the time, I had already spoken to witnesses, so I was paying close attention. So I got the wire that the eyewitness reports were canceled. I said, my goodness, I can't believe it. And uh, I, was, I was shocked that the eyewitnesses would not be allowed to speak, especially the ones that I spoke to. I said, boy, if you get them on TV, you know, the whole theory is going to crumble for the, for the government. Um, but, you know, the significance of what Norm Weimar did, it can't be overstated. His report concludes the following. There were 102 people who saw and reported the origin of a streak of light. 96 out of those 102 people, now that's 94%, said that the origin of that streak of light was on the surface. Flight 100 was 2.6 miles above the surface. And people always say witnesses, oh, they can't rely on them, they can't get the same thing. They say some, you know, the guy at the bank robber was six feet tall, the other guy said he was five feet tall. Well, th that's not this, this is a different situation. Here, you got 94% agreement on a certain statistic. When you have that, that agreement, that, that's a fact. That turns into a fact now. You know, something right. rose off the surface. And the media had this. So uh, I, why wasn't the media as shocked as, as I was at the time? And when they got Norm's report, was Norm handed it directly to them, uh, what did they do with it? And, and, and just like when Hank testified, they didn't do anything. When they had Norm's report, they didn't do anything. And, and it boggles my mind to this day that the media, the major networks, are, are defending this, this house of cards that, that is the, the official scenario. Well, two things I think on that. One is, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this right as you, right as you got dropped, but that the, uh, over the last 25 or 30 years, the, it seems to me that the media and the government have, have developed such a horribly uh, incestuous relationship uh, that that it's very hard for citizens to get the truth from the media, uh, especially a, an unvarnished truth or a plain truth. And two, uh, and listen, we've had evidence of this tonight. We've already had uh, several callers uh, that uh, the screeners screamed that uh, that were <laughs> that were he described them as horribly abusive, yelling about this and uh, I think part of that is, and I've even had a member of my own family uh, say this to me last week. They said uh, I asked if they were going to listen to the show, and they said, "No, and I said, "Why not?" And they said because because I don't want to know." They don't want to know. There's a lot of people that just don't want to know. If something like this happened, they don't want to know that it happened. They want they they have a picture in their mind uh, of a of a government that wouldn't do such a thing, and they don't want any type of confirmation that that their view or their picture of the government could be wrong. And I think a lot of people are like that. I find that I find that in volunteer work and stuff uh, all the time that people don't want, they don't want to know the truth if the truth is going to be painful or if it's going to cause them additional work. I think that's that's absolutely true. Uh, having been a servant of the government, so to speak, for 42 years, it was a government that I was proud to work for and wanted to believe in. But TWA changed all that. I got, you know, there's there's absolutely no incentive for the other guys on the team and I uh, 
to have come forward at all. What are we going to get out of this other than the fact or the satisfaction of knowing that the truth has been told and we've served 230 people that died in that explosion and, and saw that justice was done. That's all we intend to get out of it. But it's important. If they can lie about this, as Tom has said many times, they can get away with anything. Well, and I think that they're doing that right now. And I think, I think that the, the latest administration, and listen, I, I don't think that any, I don't care what the prefix in front of you is, I don't think any administration really has, a, uh, uh, has dibs on this. But it seems like the current one, I think that they're, they're uh, just to keep doing uh, anything and everything because nobody could possibly believe that one after the other after the other, that each of the things that they're doing in succession are as horrible as people say they are. I think they're just, they're just flooding us with uh, stuff and, and nobody's paying attention to it because yeah. they, they, can't, they can't believe that, uh, that it could be true. Now, I know that, that today there's a big difference in 1996. Like Mr. Stalkup said, uh, and I remember you saying this uh, on, the, on the documentary, you said you went to your dial-up connection. And that was back when the Internet was, was pretty much kind of in its infancy still. And uh, if it would have been something like, if it would have happened today, I think the information would have been disseminated much quickly, much more quickly. And I think that things may have gone a different way. But uh, a lot of people that were, were, were talking about it then, as a matter of fact, I was reading about uh, Pierre Solinger, uh, the, uh, I believe he was Kennedy's, press secretary at the time, he was trying to, to put forth the information that he thought from uh, the information that he had been given that it was, in fact, a missile. And I believe they, they actually coined an, a term for it, the Solinger uh, syndrome, which is supposed to describe someone who believes everything they hear on the Internet. Uh, and I thought that that was... Uh, that was a, a terrible legacy for him. But I think that nowadays, I, I think that uh, information can get out a lot quicker. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping happens with this show and with the documentary is that, that people will take the information that you've given them and, said, and say, well, I'm going to go find out for myself uh, and, and research and see how much, how many piles of information uh, are actually out there. That's right. The, the Pierre Salinger syndrome. I mean, uh, he did some things that he probably shouldn't have. But th th that, right. that term I never heard before. I think that's a term that CNN wants everyone to start using. Um, they uh, were the ones that, that caught him um, using a document that was on the internet. But you know, I think Pierre Salinger. Think anyone who's his age back in 1996. You know, he probably didn't even know what the internet was. Uh, s someone. Uh, convinced him that he had a, had some intelligence document, and whoever did that to him fraudulently did so. I mean, if we're going to take him for his word, he I, I, he he didn't. I find it hard to believe that that he even had an internet connection. Never mind, knew how to use it to to research uh, documents. Um, what he told the press was that someone gave it to him, 
and, and whoever gave it to him convinced him that he was from an intelligence agent. Now, someone duped him. Okay, that's what he's responsible for. You know, I, right. I say that, that he believes things he read on the Internet. Well, that's, that, that's CNN's spin right there. Right. But he did. Well, you know, another know interesting that, uh, aspect of it that hasn't been discussed were the French investigators. We had uh, a significant number of French citizens on the airplane, and the French uh, equivalent of the NTSB, the DGCA, sent a team of several investigators, all experienced uh, men that belonged to the uh, International Association of Air Safety Investigators, a group of professional aircraft investigators that I belonged to for years. They were with us for, oh, maybe a week, and then they all disappeared, something that was uh, almost unheard of, and I could never understand why, because normally they would have participated as partners in the full investigation, yet they showed up, we took them on a tour, and a couple days later they were gone. It never made any sense. These are the, the uh, French investigators? Yep. So they showed up, and you said normally they would uh, they would either assist or... Uh, oh, yeah, we do it all the time. Uh, you know, I, I, for instance, I, I was sent to Sweden on an investigation many years ago with an, an SAS uh, airplane that uh, crashed. And I, I worked there for weeks and weeks with... Uh, uh, the the, uh, the Swedish Board of Accident Investigation, uh, and I was a member of their team. You know, they I, I worked under the guidance of the of the the Swedish investigator in charge, but I was a group chairman. Uh, I developed the report, safety recommendations. We made some some improvements based on some problems that we saw, and it was a cooperative effort. And it has always been that way under the ICAO annex the, the Interna international civil aviation organization annex 13 we have agreements with countries all over the world where we work together we have a ntsb investigators in malaysia right now which is a different subject but you know they've been there since uh right after the right after the uh, plane went missing to help out uh yet the french investigators who would have been a great asset we're here a couple of days, and then all of a sudden disappeared with no explanation. Why, Mr. Stalk, Mr. Stalkup? Did you uh, did anybody uh, contact the French investigators or, or ask them why they why they had disappeared or anything? Hank, I believe we did t uh, call uh, a, a French investigator, and uh, I, from my recollection, correct me if I'm wrong, Hank. Um, he didn't want to cooperate with us. Is that correct? That's correct. We did have right. a, a, an investigator who represented the families who helped us later on, but right after the fact, they uh, it was a hot potato, I guess, for lack of a better way to, to explain it. They they didn't want to want to have any part of it. We've also sent uh, copies of our petition to. Uh, uh, other investigative agencies to review and uh, have had very little comment on it. And well, I think, I you know... Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say that one, one, I think that the, the, the problem is, is symptomatic of the same problem that the, 
the Airline Pilots Association and TWA and the, the, all of the other uh, parties to our investigation had, basically they were intimidated. I mean, the night before the public hearing, the investigator in charge, a man named Al Dickinson, went around to, to uh, the party coordinators, the people in charge of these other companies and agencies, and basically intimidated them and told them they weren't going to ask any questions at the public hearing. And, and uh, you know, that's that's totally inappropriate behavior. And, and again, I find I just, uh, I... it's taken me 17 years to put all this stuff together, uh, working with Tom and the other guys. Collectively, we've, we've uh, been able to piece things together, and in great part because of Tom's scholarship. But... For a long time, we didn't know what we didn't know until we started to collect the facts, and the facts plainly say what happened. Well, I know that, uh, and and certainly I'm not going to try and, and push this into a conspiracy theory because I, because I think that that what you guys have done was was the exact perfect way to do it, and that is just collecting the evidence and uh, providing. Uh, folks a chance to see the evidence without trying to uh, to make any uh, suggestions or conjecture about uh, uh, about who was responsible or anything like that but yeah. uh, I know that people say that uh, that there's no way you can keep folks from talking about this but that's that's not the truth you could you can actually do it fairly easily uh, in a lot of ways and mm -hmm. and they also say how could you keep that many people from uh, you know from from talking about this secret? But there doesn't have to be that many people that knows anything about it, and they can just That's be right. they can just be told what they are supposed to what they are supposed to say, and uh, and certainly a lot of the folks like uh, the. Um, what was it? The airlines. Uh, what was it? The, the was it the, the crew investigator? Uh, he was the airline pilots association, or, or the uh, uh, the operations group would have investigated the pilot aspect of it. Well, the 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 one gentleman uh, remarked in the uh, in the documentary. He said that he was told when he went in when he was told that he wasn't supposed to say anything at the board yeah. hearing. That he was told, if you if you believe in corporate memory, you will keep your mouth shut. Uh, yeah, that was another way of intimidation, saying if you if you open your mouth, you're not going to work for anybody in this town again. Yep, and that was that was Captain Bob Young, a member of our our team. Uh, Rocky uh, Miller, I think that was. Yeah. Was it Rocky? Oh, that's right. You're right. It was Rocky Miller. He was the party coordinator for the uh, flight attendants union. That's it. The flight attendants union, right? So there, there is, there are plenty of ways to tell people to keep their mouths shut, and then, uh, and then of course, if you control uh, the body of what gets out to the media and stuff like that. I myself, I remember uh, when this went on, but I also remember thinking uh, when they said uh, several people said that, uh, or there, there were reports, uh, and it was always uh, colored with the conspiracy theory brush 
They were yeah. saying that uh, you know there were there were wild and random reports of folks saying that uh, they think that they could have seen something like a missile or something like that. And I, even myself, I thought at the time, I go, well, that's ridiculous because if it, if there was any kind of information uh, that proved there, that there would be a missile, it would be easy to it would be easy for folks to find it, and then they would have to report it, and then that would be that. You know, we'd know for sure. And since it didn't get reported, then that's not what happened. And for until yeah, I saw your documentary, that's what I thought. And until I, I, I even watched the documentary by accident, uh, TWA Flight 100, it was coming on, and I didn't, I didn't put the two together until it actually started. And then I was, I was watching it for a few minutes thinking, um, I don't know what this is going to be about. Uh, but I started watching it. And the more I watched it, the, the, more, the more my jaw dropped. Because it, it, it was just, I, I can't tell guys, if you haven't seen the documentary, then you really need to watch it. Because, uh, because the way I've been talking about it, the way I've been describing it, which is, I believe it to be the most well-documented cover-up uh, in American history. They're, the government, I think at the time uh, when it was, I mean, they did a great job uh, on the fly of, of catching all this and spinning it the way they wanted to. Nonetheless, they, they couldn't do much about the fact that documentation was being made of what actually happened uh, as the investigation was going in. Whether they put out the story at the end to give it the color or to say, uh, you know, we've decided that it's a center fuel tank, hit the gavel on the table, and then let's move on, it doesn't matter because it was already documented, and you guys did a great job of presenting the evidence. Thanks. Let me, let me reference what you said earlier about, you know, yeah, they would have had evidence. They would have brought it forward. Uh, one trick that they did was, uh, I'll give you an analogy. Uh, let's say uh, someone gets shot by a high-powered rifle and falls off a building and hits the ground. Um, and they go, and the, and the investigators come in, and they're told, someone who's never investigated a gunshot wound ever, you, those are the people you send in, first of all. So, no, so people who've never right. investigated a, gun, a gunshot wound go in there, and you tell them, look for powder burns. You find powder burns, if you don't find powder burns, it wasn't a bullet. And everyone's looking for powder burns. And there isn't one powder burn on an entire body. And they come forward and say, there is no evidence that a bullet entered this body. That's exactly what happened in Flight 800. A shoulder-fired missile um, to explode, which you said before, it's a contact-fused missile, explodes on contact with its target, leaves clearly identifiable traces such as uh, melted, melted whole walls, um, pitting of the metal. That's when you have an explosion, you know, inches away from the metal. And they were told, people who never investigated a, uh, a missile shot in their lives, were told to go look for, you know, shoulder-fired missile damage. They didn't say, hey, look for shoulder-fired missile damage. They said, this is what missile damage is. It's this pitting that you'll see. And with a, with a proximity-fused missile, one that explodes 50 to 100 feet away, there is no pitting. It can't be. You need the, you need the explosives to be just, just like the powder burns. It has to be close. And it's, if it was a proximity fuse missile, you wouldn't have got any of that stuff. So they're told, look for pitting. And you can actually watch this. Go ahead and check, check out No Survivors. It's a documentary CNN did. There's a point in it where the, the Matt, David Mattingly, CNN correspondent, says, 
to, to, to Jim Wilder, who was a metallurgist, says, here's the, here's, the, here's the missile damage. He's standing in front of the wreckage. You see this right here, the pitting? Did you find this anywhere on the aircraft? Jim Wilder says, no, we didn't. And that's how CNN says, aha, there, it wasn't a missile. And that's how they did it. Yeah. Inexperienced people never identified missile damage before in their lives. They're the people talking at the public hearing, and they say there's no evidence of a missile. But they're well, not. Makes, but they don't know what they're really saying. There's no evidence of a shoulder-fired missile. There's plenty yeah, well, of evidence. I mean, uh, a great deal of, of proximity. A great deal of sense now. Because I was wondering, whenever Mr. Hughes, whenever you were saying that they sent in a ton of inexperienced investigators, I thought to my, I was thinking when you were saying that, I go, to what end? How does that fit in? Because it wasn't done by accident. Whatever was done was done on purpose to produce a result. So what was? Why, what yeah. was the result they were trying to produce? And now I, I'm making the connection. Those guys were exactly. doing it because well, a lot of, a they lot didn't of know people, what to look for. Yeah, a, a, lot of time, a lot of people at the time chalked it up to the dispute between the FBI and CAA over Ruby Ridge and Waco, Texas. But I was trained in bomb scene investigation and work, investigated, in fact, my first bombing in 1973. And guess who trained me? And they did a darn good job. The ATF, the, you know, we used to call them the bombs, bullets, and booze boys, but their explosives investigators are outstanding. And, but it was a resource that the FBI absolutely refused to use. They wanted to do things the right way. I had 20 of them working over in my hangar, and they were extremely competent, capable people, but they weren't given the opportunity to do their job. Well, that that makes a lot more sense to me now. Whenever you, whenever you explain that, Mr. Stalkup and Mr. Hughes, because I, I was trying to figure out what what advantage. Now, obviously, there's the the advantage of of people that don't have any experience, and they're not gonna they're not gonna know what to look for. But uh, that makes a lot of sense. Just saying, look, the, here's what you need to look for. You need to look for these things if it's an explosion, and and that is saying, like you said, if it's a certain type of explosion, which it wasn't. And I think that a lot of people, if you haven't, if you haven't dealt with uh, or seen the effects of blast damage and stuff like that, then you may not understand uh, if a missile exploded next to the aircraft, how, how could that damage it? And uh, a blast, when you have a significant high ordnance explosion, the overpressure, the pressure that it puts out is very, very strong. It's like, uh, like if you took a pillowcase and you, you filled it up with dirt and you, and you took a good swing of it and swung it into your car, it's going to crater it. And that's what, uh, that's what an explosion will do. And the aircraft certainly aren't designed uh, to withstand that type of, of pressure uh, in that direction, and certainly not multiple times. Now, you did a great job, I thought, uh, on discussing the left wing, how the top of the left wing was fragmented. And I, I recognize that, that pattern myself, uh, how you can get, uh, if you put a whole lot of pressure on something that's locked up tight, how it can cause a, a part of the uh, the structure's wall to fragment like that. But if the uh, but it's certainly not going to do that just from falling 
into the water, and certainly not if the fuel has already leaked out. Now, I know that uh, that the way that fuel tanks and stuff are designed now, they're designed so that they so that all the fuel doesn't splash out all at once, uh, you know, and, and you can take uh, punctures to the fuel tank without all of the fuel leaving by, by compartmentalizing the fluid in the cells. Regardless, uh, if the wing came off and fell, uh, even from that height, it's still not going to fragment the way that it did. And I thought you did a great job of replicating damage when you bolted the uh, the piece of uh, wing that you had and detonated the explosives underneath it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, the, it's a hydraulic damage uh, to the wing. Uh, the, you know, the wing was full of, of liquid, or the liquid was fuel. What we did in our test was we used water because we didn't want to have a fire afterwards, but a liquid's a liquid. It, it has the same properties, and we wanted to replicate the damage, so we did put some, uh, I believe it was some di- equivalent of a dynamite inside the liquid, and, and it actually did replicate the damage. And that was just to uh, replicate the, the actual forces that were imparted onto the liquid uh, fuel of the, of the left wing, which we believe was the initiating event. I mean, you can see it on radar. I mean, the left wing, <clears throat> you don't see the, you don't notice the left wing being damaged on radar, but you do see a, a sharp uh, left turn, which witnesses also reported. And um, the damage to the left wing uh, early in the crash sequence would explain a left turn. And in fact, left wing pieces were found early in the crash sequence. Now, the official theory uh, cannot have this happen. They need those wings to have the aircraft shoot up and look like a missile to fool the eyewitnesses. And so the official theory has the wing being undamaged. And so, again, this is one more thing that that, that uh, uh, discredits the official theory. If that's true, then, then why were uh, left-wing components, internal and external, found in the uh, earliest debris field? In the, very, in, JFK airport. in the very first debris field. Now, yeah. I also saw some photographs in the, during the research that I was doing of the center fuel tanks that had fragmentation holes in them. Uh, it looked like there were there were two fragmentation holes that uh, that apparently the report says were made by fragments estimated to be traveling between 1,000 to 1,500 feet per second. Uh, and that along a trajectory that was inconsistent with, uh, with like a fuel tank explosion. And and there's certainly, the, if it feels like exploding, it wouldn't be driving pieces of things into itself. Uh, Mr. Hughes, do you remember seeing uh, any holes in the center fuel tank like what they were describing? Well, there, there were a lot of fractures. Uh, on the left side, yes. Uh, and, and I might also add, when we did the reconstruction in the main hangar, you know, I was there... 16 hours a day, seven days a week for months. And I remember as we got pieces in of the left wing, uh, it was markedly different. The, you know, the right wing was in pretty good shape, all things considered. The left wing was, was, was fractured in many, many, many places, particularly near the wing route where it meets the center fuel tank. Uh, and, and I might also add what's interesting, too, is if you look at the reconstruction that they have at the NTSB Training Center in Ashburn, Virginia, you'll see the area of the fuselage and the seats and the cabin over the center fuel tank. The rest was unceremoniously 
without the permission of TWA or anybody else, destroyed by the NTSB. Why? If you're going to, yeah, supposedly they're going to use that as a training aid, uh, but why would you destroy all of the evidence if you wanted to use it for training purposes? Or for that matter, you know, could there have been another reason for, for, for having that, that uh, portion of the airplane, in particular the left side, left wing, destroyed? I don't understand why they would destroy why they would destroy any of it. Now is the uh is any of the the aircraft is it still assembled or, or stored somewhere? The center fuel tank well the, the area over the center fuel tank, the fuselage, the cabin area seats and the center fuel tank area was reconstructed along with the rest of the entire airplane. Uh and they just they made a management decision that they were going to bring that back to Washington, and that the rest of the aircraft, instead of being returned to its owner TWA, they had it destroyed without anybody else's knowledge, contrary to NTSB policy, I might add. But the only thing left that you can look at is is that one section that you see on uh, CNN and some of the other networks uh, whenever they show a TWA story. Uh, we we reconstructed 95% of that airplane, interior as well as exterior, and what you get to see is less than 20% of it because that represents the story that they want you to believe. Wow. What, uh, I know that, uh, I know that, uh, who, who initiated the test of the, of having the contractors uh, come in and fire the shoulder-fired missiles. Uh, was that the NTSB? Yes. And yes, they was. were supposedly doing this to show that the folks, that people couldn't see it or they wouldn't know. Yeah. They wouldn't. Uh, I don't. I, to me, that just seems strange, too. Is why are, Well, it was, why it was are you, basically. Prove, prove, prove the negative. They wanted to show that uh, people couldn't have discerned the difference between a flare and a missile. And and Tom can talk about it in more detail, but basically uh, everybody who saw the test, all of the people who were there and observed it, unanimously came to the same conclusions, and they could all distinguish between a flare and a missile. But if uh, Tom can give you the more specifics on it, I think. Yeah, it was a test done in, I think, near Eglin Air Force Base in the Panhandle of Florida in 2000, a few months before their final hearing. And uh, I guess the purpose of the test is to see how far can a witness really be and still see a missile. They put witnesses at various distances from the launch site and launched three or four missiles. And, well, guess what? Every witness saw the missile clearly, and they called it a, a rapidly rising, rising light which is exactly what people said they saw right before Flight 100 went down. And those results didn't quite, um, <laughs> weren't the results they wanted. And uh, that report was not really uh, discussed much at the Baltimore hearing. But what I found most significant of that report was there was radar data that, that captured it. And uh, none of the missiles were recorded on radar until they exploded. The explosion itself uh, you know, once the missile, before a missile explodes, it's kind of like a stealth fighter. It, it, it's rounded surfaces. You know, aircraft radar just just 
is designed to filter out smaller objects, you know, ones that don't reflect right, radar right. that well. And those missiles were not picked up until they detonated. Then they're jagged. They're no longer stealthy. And that's exactly what happened in Flight 800. Um, no, nothing shows up in, until the detonation. And the detonation is, is violent. It goes perpendicular to the aircraft, and it's clearly visible on radar. And that's consistent with, it, with their witness tests down in Florida that, that the missiles were not picked up in, until detonation. Well, the radar data that you presented in the documentary I thought was very conclusive because, as you said, the, there, there can be no other explanation for that. You have that little tiny section of the radar data along the flight path that shows the instantaneous uh, traveling from the aircraft and out away from it uh, of material that's showing up on radar uh, at speed that you guys determined to be in excess of Mach 3, right? Yes. Mach well, 4. There's no, Mach 4, okay. Well, there, there's nothing, There there is no other way to get uh, material to accelerate from zero uh, to that speed other than a high ordnance explosion. There's just, there's no other way for it to occur. Now, I know that you said that, that, that the radar uh, couldn't pick up the missile, and that's true because, as you said, it's not designed to pick up something small, and, it's, and they do want to filter out birds and, and all the rest of the stuff, <clears throat> but you can catch when it explodes and whenever it uh, shoves the debris out, you can catch that. However, there was also uh, there was a lot of discussion about there being naval uh, ships underneath this event, uh, and of course uh, there was uh, at first they said there were, then there wasn't, and then there's the FBI, I guess, refusal to identify quite a few ships. However, I know that. Uh, that naval systems, the naval radar, especially on something like an Aegis cruiser or something like that, has the ability to track even very small objects traveling at high speed and to track them very accurately. So somewhere, if that was in fact uh, some naval ships with uh, that type of radar, then there is a recording somewhere of what uh, of what actually happened. I'm sure that well, I, I'm sure that there's no way there. for Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, let me start, that, and, and I think uh, Tom has a lot to add to it. Uh, as soon as we got there and started to uh, get geared up as far as the investigation, I guess uh, probably the fourth fourth day or so, I was in the hangar, and I was talking to Special Agent Maxwell, who was in charge of the hangar, a very good man, very conscientious guy, FBI type, and Mr. Kallstrom came in. And the, we had a general discussion, but basically about you know what needs to be done. And I said, look, we need the best. We need to to have the best ATC guy we can get on this. And the reason I talked to him about this was three days prior, the second day of the investigation, I talked to the chairman of the safety board. Uh, I, the times maybe off a, a few days, but anyway. I talked to the chairman of the safety board in the presence of the entire team. And when they sent the GO team from NTSB to Long Island, they didn't send a qualified air traffic control investigator. They sent a very nice guy, 
who wasn't qualified to to fit that slot because they didn't have anybody. It was his turn on the go team, and they sent him. Having said that, and realizing the magnitude of the situation, I suggested that they contact one of our retired investigators who's got a reputation for probably being the best ATC analyst in the world. He's he's done some remarkable things. And I gave, and I'd already called our deputy director and got the, my my uh, colleagues, uh, retired colleagues, uh, home phone number. And he said, I'd be glad to help out. It was a matter of patriotism. He didn't want any money, just was glad to help. I gave the number to Mr. Hall and his name, and I said, please call him. He's expecting your call. Uh, we need the best we got, and he's it. Mr. Hall never called the guy, never even attempted to contact him. Three days later, I was, to be quite angry, I was, uh, well, since it's a family show, I'll be polite. I was angry. And so I, I talked to Calstrom, the deputy director of the FBI, and he said, look, we need the best ATC guy we can get. I said, we also need to look at VTS, Vessel Traffic Services. You know, the Coast Guard tracks ships and, and the, in the area and that sort of thing to see if there was any surface traffic because at that point the FBI was interested in the missile possibility. And he said, if you got any suggestions, and I handed him that man's name and phone number, and within 20 minutes, they'd done a background investigation and hired him because of his eminent qualifications. He's the one that did the radar workup for the FBI, which was not shared with the NTSB for a long, long time. Subsequent to, to uh, the investigation, Tom and I sat down and spent the better part of a day with him, with Captain Young, one of our team members, and went over the radar information, and he verified and, and, and answered all our questions about what he had found. But it was a classic example of where radar data, both air traffic control as well as vessel traffic control, was critical. And, and well, at that me, point, I'll let Tom, Tom explain uh, the significance of the radar data. Well, let me, let me real quickly, I, I got a guy calling in that said that, that he was a witness there. I'm gonna, just going to bring him on real quick with us because uh, maybe, uh, I, I don't know, maybe you guys have talked to him, I don't know, but maybe he saw some other ships uh, or something there too, and I, I wanted to get him on. He, he's been holding on a while. Uh, I'm not going to say your name, but... Uh, but WG, you were you were a witness to the event there uh, uh, of the yeah. crash. Is that right? That is correct. Now, yeah. What What were you doing there, and did you see any other ships or anything like that? Can you tell us what you saw? Um, I was on Blue Point. I think you two gentlemen know where Blue Point is. Right. I was I was uh, finished varnishing a, a rail on my boat. I am uh, probably 30 feet from the bay and uh, stopped and was just focused into nowhere straight out into the blue. Um, I didn't see any missiles going up. I did see after the initial thing that looked like a small, that looked like a small flare um, before the great deflagration started. Uh, I saw pieces coming down from that that did leave smoking trails. Um, this is pretty much what I gave out in uh, FBI interviews three days later because my wife made me call in after hearing the circus. Uh, yeah. The uh, <clears throat> so that 
that I did see the thing increase in altitude almost vertically, uh, by the way, that initial uh, fireball before the uh, deflagration. And I do understand that deflagration is different from a high ordnance um, uh, explosion in that one's like setting a cherry bomb off by your butt and the other one's like lighting a fart. Yep. Um, <laughs> you, you don't want the Analogy, cherry bomb going boy. off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, the and and I'm not disputing what other people see because um, you know I've I've had a captain's license since 1972 uh, and I've stared at the sky and uh, up and down the East Coast on many times uh, for long hours and yeah sometimes you think you see something moving and it's not or you may mistake the direction it comes from as you're swinging your head I froze in position and witnessed it, and I didn't realize the scale of what I was looking at until I found it falling behind Fire Island. Okay, that put it, that's four miles from me. That put it in perspective that it was miles beyond, probably double. Um, with, within that entire horror show, I did see the wings fall out of that deflagration. Uh, the port wing... Uh, falling off lower than the starboard wing. Um, So I'm not sure what that entire, um, you know, I knew the center spar let go, probably the port side first, then the starboard side, because one was probably a good 5, 10 degrees higher in the sky than the other one. Sliding out, both were in flames. They were rotating like they did not have the engines on them. So I imagine the engines at that point had already departed the wings. Um, but I want to posit to you guys that maybe, I mean, no U.S. naval vessel would have fired a missile inbound towards the United States. There's no way that any aircraft or any naval ship would have done that. In the event that uh, there was debris, it would have ended up hitting civilians on the mainland. Right. Um, I, my, my, I, I do believe there was a high ordnance explosion to begin with, and I think part of the reason that the entire thing was bottled up is, number one, I believe the flight originated in Greece. Yes. And I believe that um, they're a particular prickly ally of the United States, and we don't want to impugn their honor or anything else to keep them within NATO. Is that true? Well, that's uh, a, I'm not I'm qualified to answer that. Yeah. One of the witnesses, uh, well, by the way, was a airline pilot. Well, look, um, I, I, don't wanna, to... I, I appreciate you calling in. I don't want to cut you off, but, but we're running out of time. I want to thank you for, for calling in and adding to this. And uh, and I'm going to – but I want to continue on with a couple other questions in a different direction. But thank you very much for calling in, okay? And I'll see you this weekend. Yes, you will. All right, thank you, sir. Yeah, if, if uh, we haven't, then we'd love to talk to him. By the way. Okay. All right. Well, I'll get his information. I'll, I'm, I'll, he'll be at a shooting event that I'm holding this weekend. I'll get his information. Uh, oh, great. We're running out of time, but I wanted to ask uh, one other question, and that is uh, that there is uh, there is also uh, from some of the information that I brought up. There's also some question about the the flight data recorder. Uh, 
information. Uh, some people are saying that that the the information was somehow fiddled with, that the last four seconds, uh, which had been recorded and tabulated, but but then not released to the public. Are, are you aware of any uh, anything like uh, that? Here, here's the problem. The individual that did the uh, aircraft performance work on the investigation uh, had some serious problems uh, and, in fact, later was let go by the uh, the NTSB short of being fired. Uh, his work, <laughs> I let the beans out of the bag, He's a, it's a guy, uh, but his work we have scrutinized closely and found many, many errors and suppositions. You know, there, there's an old saying in action investigation, if you have to make more than one assumption, the ice gets thinner. And this yeah. guy used dozens of assumptions that proved to be incorrect. He was not an air traffic control expert by any means. In fact, he even contacted our expert after the fact and said, hey, how much would it cost me for you to train me uh, to be an air traffic control specialist so I could conduct these types of uh, investigations as a consultant? And the guy, needless to say, hung up on him. But uh, I think, you know, it was an old recorder, uh, whether the information was extrapolated accurately or not, I don't know. I do know that the information that was used from that recorder, along with, with other information, including air traffic control by this individual, is highly suspect. Okay, so so whether or not the 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 any of the information from the uh, the flight data reporter in whatever direction it goes would then be suspect uh, I don't know how much I don't know how much data you can get from a flight data reporter I don't I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, skilled in, in that in that way but so you're saying that the the investigation was or that that data was somehow tainted. In my opinion, yes, and I think Tom agrees with that. Well, I don't know. Um, eh, I heard about the four second. Uh, we just didn't. We weren't able to confirm that independently, so we can't really comment on if there's any data missing or not. Is you know, when without confirming that independently on our own, we're going to have to say that that you know we we right, just can't right. comment on that one way or the other. Um, eh, the data itself, if you look at the raw data and you take it and you analyze it yourself, you know it, it shows what happened. And regardless of what this, uh, this this unqualified air traffic control specialist did, you know we actually said, okay, forget what he did. Let's do our own analysis. And we took the raw data, and it clearly shows what happened. Now, there was a high velocity explosion that caused this crash. Asymmetrical uh, sent stuff due south. The airplane was heading east northeast. So there was high velocity, and it's consistent with the southbound trajectory of the object seen by witnesses. And another thing that's significant is the timing information. You know, you can actually pretty well determine exactly where in space and time this this event happened based on radar and black box information. And when you do that, you you find out that the the official theory doesn't hold up to scrutiny either. Uh, there are many witnesses that said, "Okay, I saw this object rise sharply above this rooftop." Well, you go back to that rooftop, well. 
the aircraft uh, was not there doing what the government said it did at that time. Therefore, what he saw was not the aircraft. It was a separate object. And there's many analyses you can do based on the data right. on your own, you know, regardless of what the NTSB uh, uh, puts out there to to uh, to determine what happened to this plane. Right. Well, the going back to the uh, the vessels in the vicinity and stuff, uh, a lot of the a lot of the official explanations uh, they they're talking about different things. Like I said, there were some vessels that. They were not identified, and then uh, and then I read a bit of information, and I, I cut and pasted it so I could keep it. But it, they were talking about one of the vessels that didn't change track it, and continued on at a 30 knot, uh, the you know speed and direction past it. All the rest of these vessels, or, or several uh, vessels, did not converge on it. But most of the vessels in the area were you know went over there, I guess, to try and help. Now they say yeah. that the that the, their investigation of this indicated that the 30-knot track was consistent with normal commercial fishing. Uh, I find that kind of hard to believe because I don't know anybody that, that fishes at that speed, but that's just that's what they're saying. Yeah, uh, in fact, that track goes right out at high speed to the Atlantic and disappears. Well, yeah, it goes off, it goes off the radar, and then we don't yep. know what happened to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was there. It was at high speed. It was picked up by aircraft radar. Other smaller boats weren't, so you can assume it was a large ship, and there just aren't many large ships that I know of that can go that speed. There, there, are, there are a few types, and most of those are... Uh, right. right. Uh, I don't know of any commercial fishing vessels that do 30 knots uh, for fishing or anything else. Well, there's also uh, the guys tried to... They tried... The, 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 it was it's fact that there were that there were quite a few uh samples that tested positive for things like uh, PTN high explosives residue and they tried to uh explain that away as the 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 dog sniffing exercise although it's hard to believe that they would leave that much uh, high explosive residue in an aircraft, but that that also was uh, refuted by you guys on investigation, showing that the aircraft that that they were talking about, there's no way that they could have that they could have been in Flight 800 at that time. Yeah, we we looked at the FBI documents they provided to Congress, and the timing just didn't line up. The officer that conducted the alleged exercise, first of all, says he didn't spill any explosives, so, so you can throw that part of the story out. And secondly, he says, I was on an empty plane, there was nobody on board. Well, if that's the case, you know, then he couldn't have been on the plane that would have become Flight 800 because it was being boarded by uh, 400 passengers on the way to Honolulu uh, uh, from St. Louis at the time, and and therefore it would not have been an empty plane while it was being uh, this exercise was being conducted. So... Uh, it just the timing just doesn't add up, and the uh, the officer himself believes he was most likely on an adjacent 747 on an adjacent gate that was actually empty at the time. Well, I I I know I've been I've I've kept you guys on here for quite a while, and and I really appreciate you giving me this time. But let me ask you uh, let me ask you 
one last thing, and that is uh, where where is the investigation going now? Uh, what uh, what remains active of the investigation, and are there ways that uh, that other folks can help with this? I can think of a few things that. Uh, well, let me give you. Uh, a little bit of insight. We're pursuing matters with the NTSB. We had a meeting with them in January, and hopefully they're uh, giving this the attention that it deserves. Uh, none of the folks that were involved in TWA are currently there. Uh, in fact, the one gentleman that was featured in the documentary that uh, I talked about exfoliating evidence and that sort of thing has been put on a uh, uh, a detail to a private company, from what I understand, which is rather interesting, and the current chairman has just resigned. But hopefully they'll give this a, a fresh look. Uh, in addition to that, we're pursuing other channels through uh, government agencies, in particular through uh, the Office of Special Counsel, uh, and to try to compel them to do the right thing. Uh, as far as uh, help and assistance, We'd like you, to, like your viewers, to, to look at the documentary and come to their own conclusions. We trust their good common sense. If you believe that what we've said is true, and I assure you it is, contact your congressmen and senators and raise hell. Write letters, demand that the investigation be reopened, re, and, 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 and the proper examination be conducted. We owe it to 230 people, uh, and we owe it to ourselves. And I Absolutely. would just add to that, uh, just as well as contacting Congress, uh, please uh, contact the media as well. Ask them why they're they're not stepping up to the plate, and say that and try to. That's what I've been trying to do all these years. And the reason we did this documentary is because you know no one in the media seemed to have the courage to, to do this justice. And we really hope that with public pressure, um, you know, even the media might be able to do the right thing as well. Well, once the one last thing too, and one additional last thing I guess I want to ask is, uh, in prior investigations, uh, when the NTSB had determined, uh, say, a cause, like in this case, let's say that uh, they said, all right, it was a uh, it was a center fuel tank uh, ignition that caused the explosion, yeah. isn't there? Isn't there some type of action that follows this? But they determine that that something is causing the tank to explode in a certain type of aircraft. Yeah. I mean, before I've seen uh, when something happens, uh, an engine falls off or, or whatever. Uh, everybody yeah. freaks out and they go, "Okay, we got all the aircraft have to be grounded and checked out and everything else." Was anything done like that? Uh, does this model aircraft after they after they determined that uh, that the explosion occurred and why did they well did they ground any aircraft or examine other aircraft or anything like that yeah they they conducted examinations of hundreds of aircraft uh, both NTSB and FAA inspectors looked at uh, many many aircraft and, and no anomalies were found eight years after the fact the FAA issued a uh, safety uh, recall or requirement to, for modification, eight years later, 
But as I said earlier, there are only two airplanes that have ever been known to have a center fuel tank explosion. One had a bomb under the seat, so we can explain that one. It was factually documented, the Philippines airline plane. And Flight 800, where there was no physical evidence to support that that, in fact, happened. The fact that the FAA waited eight years, given and, and I have to give them credit, even though sometimes in my job they were the adversary almost, they would have acted immediately if they really knew that there was a problem. Yet it, they waited eight years later to issue a bulletin. That's, to me, that seems pretty telling also. Uh, you guys, you, you said that you had been in discussion with uh, the with NTSB and and uh, and you'd shown them uh, some more data that you had. Now, is mm-hmm. that is that hopefully going to lead to uh, additional investigation? I'd like to think so. Tom scheduled a meeting with them, and it was just I think January the 11th. We showed up with our team, and we also showed up with uh, one of the gentlemen who was one of our witnesses, a retired superintendent of schools for Suffolk County. And unfortunately, we had one person uh, who was deputy director of the Office of Accident Investigation who was technically qualified to hear what Tom had to say primarily, and we had a, a group of lawyers. And, in fact, at the meeting, I asked him a few questions. And at the end, I said, you know, uh, I realized that, you know, you haven't provided the technical specialist to sit here and listen to what we had to say, and you weren't qualified to understand it yourself. And they acknowledged that. Uh, But hopefully that one individual uh, grasped the significance of what, what was presented and the lack on it. But in my mind... Uh, there was a little defensiveness there. Uh, typical government, you know, uh, instead of ad- uh, uh, addressing the problem, they wanted to see what they could do to CYA. Right. Uh, do you guys, is there is there something definite in the future as far as uh, any more meetings or anything like that or, or, or anything that else that you're working on? Well, I'll just... Let me jump in for a second, Hank. Uh, yeah, the NTSB did meet with us, and we are very hopeful that they will do the right thing on this. Um, I'm an optimist, uh, I'm, I'm, but even I'm a little leery that, that, that they will. Um, I hope they will, and, and I, but I, I really think that it may take more public pressure than that's presently being exerted upon them. And so that's why I, we both we were all saying that you know Congress and hopefully other. Uh, other uh, people can can exert that pressure, and even members of the public uh, listening to this broadcast, you know, all the help we can get. Yeah. Um, yeah, something will happen. They're going to make a decision one way or the other. Um, something. Yeah, there is something down down the line, and I believe Hank can tell you more about a different effort. But I don't know how much Christina wants us to talk about that other effort at that at this time, Hank. But okay. I'll let you. Yeah, no, I, I can't get into details, and it's, it's not that it's a big, dark secret, but basically I'm filing a complaint with the Office of Special Counsel, uh, and they are a government agency that's independent and have the authority to investigate complaints of wrongdoing or corruption uh, and and take action against an agency to make them do the right thing. Uh, 
and pass that. Uh, you know, uh, we're hopeful that the NTSB will do the right thing. As I said, none of the none of the principals involved are still at NTSB. They're long gone. Some of them are commentators on television now, <laughs> but uh, I say that laughingly. But they have, you know, the NTSB has always been a, a wonderful organization. I was proud to work there for, except for one investigation, all of my 26 years. Uh, they have some very dedicated, wonderful, competent people. Uh, but this was not its finest hour, and it's a correction that needs to be made if they're going to regain public confidence because a lot of people are, are watching. Uh, and, you know, we saw what happened in Malaysia. I can tell you that I know the people on, on the ground from NTSB in the Malaysian accident, and they have been very outspoken about some of the things that have gone gone wrong, uh, and they're doing, the, doing their best to do the right thing. But if we want a safe transportation system, we've got to have an honest NTSB in this country. And uh, this is something that it, it's, it's uh, got to be corrected. It has. We can't go forward. We can't have public trust in the NTSB unless they correct this terrible uh, wrongdoing. Well, I know that the I know that the Malaysian situation has definitely got to be one of the most bizarre things that uh, that I've heard of in a while, and and hopefully we'll we'll find out what happened there. But I, I want to thank you both. Uh, Mr. Stalkup and Mr. Hughes, I want to thank you both, not not just for coming on tonight and speaking to the listeners here. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, I want to thank you for the effort that you guys, that you both have put in over the last, uh, well, it's, it's coming up quickly, uh, two decades now, the effort that you've put in on bringing this to light. And uh, I'm, certainly, uh, I'm certainly willing to do anything that I can to help. I'll contact my senators and congressmen, let them know. I'm going to start asking the uh, the different news agencies why they won't touch this because apparently folks won't touch it and I don't know why it's off limits but apparently it is. But I'm still going to contact them and ask them why they're not reporting on it. And, uh, and certainly if there's everything, anything I can do to assist you Please let me know, and, and thank you so much for the effort that you guys have put into it. You know, I told you, I told you earlier in an email that, I, to me, this is the kind of stuff that uh, I, I consider you guys uh, like heroes for doing this. And I, and I know that you've, you guys have said that that you aren't, but I'm, that's just the way that it works out. You know, when somebody takes a stand. And they put the effort into to pushing this. I, I think that is a very, very, uh, a very definite form of patriotism, a definite uh, form of of doing the right thing, of just doing the right thing. And uh, I want to thank you both for that. Thank you very much. All right. Well, I'll let you guys. Uh, I'll let you guys go. I would sit here for probably another two hours, but I, I really appreciate you guys calling in. And uh, maybe if if additional information comes back up, or uh, maybe we can get you guys to come back on the show. Sure, anytime. Yeah, be 
All right. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Well, well, thank you very much. Uh, God bless you both, and uh, and keep keep pushing. We will. I assure you, we will. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, guys. Good night, and uh, and I look forward to uh, to hearing about this in the in the, the months and uh, I guess in the year to follow. Thank you, guys. Welcome. And good night. Good night now. Okay, guys, that's uh, that's gonna wrap it up uh, for tonight's show. And uh, listen, please take the time to to follow their recommendations. And that is, contact your representatives and and ask them why. It's not being why well, it's not being investigated. Why well, it's not not being given the proper uh, the proper investigation it deserves, and that's all that uh, that's all they're asking for. They're just asking for the investigation to be to be reopened in order for the evidence to be considered as it was not during the initial investigation. And I think that's, that's absolutely fair. 230 lives were lost. And I remember when I'm watching the documentary, I remember seeing that the gentleman talking about how he had lost his whole family, his wife and his daughters. These folks deserve to know. It's not going to bring anybody back, but they deserve to know what happens. We deserve to be told the truth. Uh, in this nation, and and I think we should keep pushing until we get the truth. All right, all right, folks. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for listening. And uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m., uh, we'll have uh, another guest on. I'll send it out in the the uh, uh, the newsletter to you. Take care. God bless you all, and uh, we'll see you next Thursday.